And so as I was walking through, you know, the valley of the shadow of the death, I would sit there in the darkness. And when it would become too much, I would call out and Christ would come for me. Welcome to Hidden Life's podcast. I'm your host, Father Christian. Every week, I interview Orthodox Christians of varying professions. Together, we dive into their lives and explore how their faith in Christ has influenced their life and work. It's my hope that these conversations provide you with tools, thoughts, or habits that can better help you cultivate your hidden life in Christ. Today, we are joined by Elisa Belitich, an amazing woman with a great story to share. She's the author of Blueprints for the Little Church and hosts three popular ancient faith radio podcasts, among them, Everyday Orthodox. Definitely go check it out. Our conversation today has several deep topics, among them the loss of children, divorce, and suffering. Through Elisa's vulnerability and strength of character, we gain insight into how we might ourselves cope with our own losses and turn to God for comfort. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yeah, he's a friend of mine too. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. We go to camp together every summer. We must have, uh, we must have picked up the same habits. <laughs> there you go. What what camp is that? Camp Emmanuel. Father Evan is the spiritual director of Camp Emmanuel, which is the metropolis of Denver uh, camp, and it is it's a great camp. I love it. I missed it a lot Beautiful. this year. Yeah. Oh, because of yeah. the pandemic and COVID nineteen. Yeah. Um, where are you at right now? I'm in Austin, Texas, uh, in my room, where I'm, oh. hi- I'm hiding out from my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe blessed. Very nice. What, what's it like over there? Uh, you know, I, I really love Austin. I grew up in California. I grew up in Napa Valley. And that is a very beautiful place. But, you know, it's also teeming with tourists and, you know, a lot of money and a lot of weird things. And so I live in a small town west of Austin. And I just, I love it. It's just, you know, oak trees and hills and I'm so happy here. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who's getting married um, in January, but she, she, she was living in Charlotte where, where I am now and she's moving to tomorrow. Actually, they're, they're packing um, my wife and um, sister-in-law and helping her pack right now. Cause she's moving to Fredrickson, Fredrickson, I think. Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's like yeah. 20 minutes from me. No oh, kidding. Really? Yeah, I live halfway between Fredericksburg and Austin. So there's like a road here and there's like there's a monastery out here. There's all kinds of stuff. Yes, the mo- yeah, the monastery, the Orthodox. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. So after this, uh, be, feel free to pass on my information to your wife to give it to her if she needs to I connect will. with anybody in the area or whatever. Yeah. I mean, she's going to be completely new. Her, her husband, her soon to be husband has been living there. Um, and he just got received into the Orthodox Church, I think, about a week ago. Is so he at the Antiochian Church in Fredericksburg? It's, I believe, it's a, it's a, like a small, very mm-hmm. small building parish. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Well, there's only there's only one Orthodox parish in Fredericksburg, so that's how I knew. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's a small town. It's a small town, but it's great. It's really yeah. it's really a neat place, and the people are so nice, and it's yeah. lovely. It's beautiful. Um, how, how has like COVID and pandemic and everything kind of affected your your life since? Because we're in like month what six or seven? Yes. Now? So initially, it was a very dramatic shift because 
I have gotten into the habit of traveling a lot. I go around and I speak different places and then I have different family members who were sick or something was going on and I would go visit them. And uh, I have five kids and they were in school, two of them in college and three of them at home. And uh, all of a sudden the pandemic hit right around spring break. So everyone came home for spring break and then just stayed. So like my daughter from New York came down and then her friend actually um, didn't have a place to go. So he came here. And then my other daughter came up from San Antonio from her college. She had three friends who didn't have anywhere to go. So I go, oh, yeah, bring them. Because we're thinking, you know, ah, two weeks, three weeks, whatever. So I've got my five kids plus four bonus kids. So I had nine kids in the house. And wow. uh, it, was, it was really busy. But it was interesting because nobody went anywhere. Right? So it was just like all these nine kids hanging out. And I was the only one who would go anywhere. I'd go to like the grocery store or whatever and come mm-hmm, back. Mm-hmm. And it was a little stressful at first. I was worried that we were going to run out of like toilet paper or bread or something. And I wasn't <laughs> going to be able to take care of these people, but it worked out fine. You know, God provided, we did well. And then uh, at the end of the semester, so at the end of May, the uh, the bonus kids all moved out, but I kept my own. And so I've just got a house <laughs> full and it, it's kind of lovely because, you know, when you're when your kids move away, you kind of assume that, you know, they'll be home here and there on holiday, but you don't really think you're going to get like an extra six months or even a year of just hanging out with them again. So it's been really kind of fun. It's been really nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. I, I was, I was kind of uh, scared because the toilet paper kept running out. Every time I would go to Costco, it's unavailable, unavailable. Luckily our, our sister-in-law, my sister-in-law who's living with us, um, she works at Trader Joe's and uh, she was able to pick up some toilet paper. There you go. There you go. I mean, it's a funny thing, but like when you have a house full of people, you're just thinking like, ah, but you know, what, what are we going to do? But, uh, you know, we made it through. So we're all right. It's those little things that you hope to be there that you, that you think are going to be there yeah. all the time. It makes you grateful, yeah. right? It's kind of like fasting. You know, I always joke that one of my favorite things about fasting is it's not really a joke, but I like creamer in my coffee. And then, so, you know, I'll fast, I'll drink black coffee and I I'm fine with that. And then when the fast is over, it's like, Oh, can I have, cream? Yeah. you know, and you kind of ask permission. You're like, God, is it okay today? Oh, it's okay today. Okay. You know? And it's like, it's, I think it's such a great thing. And that's sort of, it was the same sort of thing, right? Like suddenly, like now when I go to Costco and they've got just this wall of toilet paper and all the flour you could want, you know, I just kind of look and I smile. I'm like, Oh, well, that's good. That's nice that we have these things. I never thought about that before. Yeah. It's a huge blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank God. Out of curiosity, were there, were there any, did, did you notice any sort of like um, added stress or tension mo- tensioned moments throughout this, at least at the onset of, of this experience? Yeah, well, I think especially um, a lot of the kids here, especially the college kids, I had six of them, um, there was just so much uncertainty for them, especially the ones who, you know, were staying with me because they didn't have a great place to be able to study from home or whatever. And uh, there's just a lot of added anxiety about what's coming next. What are we going to do? I think, um, I think too, you know, at first we were like, oh, you know, what about Pasca? What about Pasca? How are we going to be able to do any of these things? And of course, you know, pretty soon we realized, oh my gosh, we're going to have to do it at home and we're doing it over YouTube. And, and that's one thing for me that there is a little bit of stress and I don't know if it's anxiety, but more sadness. I have not been able to go back to church regularly yet. Here and there, I've gone to very small little gatherings, but um, 
one of my kids had a liver transplant years ago. So she is on special immunosuppressants and I happen to be immunosuppressed for arthritis and our doctors are like, you know, you got to stay home. So we are still locked down. Whereas I think a lot of other people are moving around a lot more than we are. We're still in the house. And I think in some way, it actually gives me a little bit of anxiety too, just about, you know, being the leader of my family in terms of making sure that they're going to church, making sure that they're doing all those things. You know, I'm not making sure they go to church. I'm making sure that they watch YouTube church, which is like going to church, you know, but it's, it's rough. It's different. And I worry about the idea that my kids, you know, if this goes on for a year or two and I have kids who are out of the habit of going to church on Sundays, um, how's that going to impact that? Or even me, right? (laughs) Like all of us, we should all be worried about it because I think it's an opening to temptation to just start start sleeping in on Sundays or whatever. And, and I think a lot about the fact that this really needs to be, this needs to mean that I am doing a better job than ever of passing on the faith in my home. And, you know, I worry, I worry that I'm not, that I'm not up to that challenge as much as I should be. So, you know, we're, we're working through it. Yeah. It's tricky. There's, there's that, there's that, uh, I don't know if it's a study, but at least I've heard it. It takes 21 days to form a habit, but so it's been way more than 21 days already. And the habit of not going to church, that's difficult, you know. It, it, it will be difficult to get back to get back to normal attendance on a regular, weekly basis for all families, whether faithful or not, or, you know, whatever it is. I feel like I can empathize with that. This year was my first year as a priest. And uh, so it was my first Basca. So I, I did Basca as a deacon last year, but it was my first Basca as a priest. And... Uh, as a parishioner, you expect you know what to expect because you've done it for so long. As a priest, it's my first time, and uh, I thought I was I was I was really looking forward to it. I was really looking forward to be able to chant "Come Receive the Light," and uh, I wasn't even able to serve that service, so it was heartbreaking, you know. But uh, but yeah, that's the that's the that's the struggle and that's the challenge. Uh, talking about since since you mentioned your daughter. Can you give me a little bit of a, of a backstory on that? Yeah. So my, uh, I have six kids and uh, my very youngest of all, uh, Mariana was born uh, with a bad liver and we didn't know it. So she was about two and a half months old and she started turning yellow after having been, you know, she seemed just fine before that. And we went into the doctor and even the doctor's like, ah, you know, she's got to be fine. She's been gaining weight. She's doing fine. There's no way she has a real problem. It's probably something benign. And sure enough, it was a real problem. So we ended up in the hospital or I was in the hospital with her from like the end of July until the end of October of 2010. And uh, she was on the waiting list for a liver transplant for a while. And just, in fact, there was actually, there was a Friday afternoon when her doctor came to me and he said, listen, sometime this weekend, like, I don't know when, but I would expect this weekend. At some point, there will be a time when a nurse is going to get worried about her breathing or something, and they're going to call for a consult. And these ICU people will swarm your room, which they had done a few times before already. It's one of these days when they swarm your room like that, they're going to say she needs to go to the ICU. And I expect that to be sometime over this weekend. But understand that when a person on the transplant list goes to the ICU, that means that they're too sick to receive a transplant. And so when, when Mariana moves, when they make that shift, that will be when she comes off the list. And I just want you to be prepared for that and to understand that at that point, she will no longer be on the transplant list and she'll be in hospice. 
And I was like, okay, you know, that's, that's how it'll be. And so we prayed and, and we just kind of just tried to, you know, stay calm. And through that weekend, it was, it was very interesting. She never had any problems. Nobody called the ICU teams or anything. She was doing fine. Not great. I mean, she was still, she was dying in liver failure for sure, but she didn't have an emergency. And, uh, my priest, it was the elevation of the cross is actually 10 years ago, September 13th. So just lately, uh, we celebrated the anniversary, but my priest was thinking a lot about this because I had spoken to him. I actually didn't know him. He had, he was the new priest at my parish and he came in while I was gone, but we'd talk on the phone. And I told him, I said, you know, yeah, I think we're kind of at the end of the road here. If she doesn't receive a liver in the next few days, we'll be finished. And, uh, Father Vasili was thinking about this on the day, on the morning of the feast of the elevation of the cross. And he came out to the parish and he said, listen, I'm going to come around with the cross. And he talked about how when Empress Helena found the cross, uh, they didn't know which one was the true cross. And they touched it to this man that brought him back to life. And that even people who passed under the shadow of the cross, like were, were healed by it, that it was so powerful. And so he says, you know, while you're kneeling and, and, praying about the cross and thinking about the cross and venerating, I want you to think about Mariana and I want you to pray for Mariana. And uh, everybody did. And there are these sweet boys who are now adults who were uh, altar boys. And they will tell you that when he said that, they were just like confident, like that they, they absolutely, they had to do this. They were totally genuine. They were totally sincere. And, and so my whole parish was on its knees praying for Mariana. And uh, about an hour later, we got a phone call that there was a liver for her on Sunday afternoon. Oh my Lord. And, and then it was just like, hold your breath and make sure that she survives until the surgery to receive it. Cause there's kind of a process there, but uh, thank God she, she received the liver and uh, it was, it was a rough road. She was in, she was in a coma for a month. I, I remember what? when she first went into surgery, I was like, Oh, it's like Holy Saturday. You know, we've had this this surgery, this scourging, all of this misery, and now yeah. you know she sleeps. And then when she wakes up, it's the resurrection, right? Well, little did I know, it was like a thirty-five day Holy Saturday. <laughs> we, <laughs> we sat there with her in a coma for thirty-five wow. days, and but you know, I, ever so slowly, you climb your way out of these things, and and God was with us the whole way, and and all kinds of little miracles along the road. And, and now I have a very healthy, crazy 10 year old who, who is wild and loud. Thank and God. Fun. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank <laughs> so God. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. How, how was that for you as a parent? You know, I actually felt, and this sounds crazy to say, but I felt actually sort of lucky that my life unfolded in the order in which it unfolded. I had two healthy kids and then my third daughter was born with a cleft lip and palate. And we did not know that that was going to happen. We didn't like... What, what is that? A cleft lip and palate is uh, a burst defect where the, the upper roof of the mouth and the front lip have sort of a split in them. They never come together. And so it means that they don't, you know, they can't eat well and they can't speak well. So back in the olden days, you know, over a hundred years ago or more, you would have just died. A child with a cleft lip and palate could not survive because they can't nurse. They can't take a bottle. um, They can't properly eat. And then if they do survive, you know, there's still speech problems and there are all kinds of social problems because they have this really obvious deformity. And so in third world countries, you have a lot of kids who, who really struggle with this, but yeah, thank God here in the United States, we have access to healthcare and, and to different options. 
So my daughter went through several different surgeries. And in that process, you know, there was one, there was one in particular, her very first surgery, I was holding this little newborn in my hands and sitting in a rocking chair waiting. And then the, the anesthesiologist came in to take her to the surgery room. And because she's a baby, they don't even like roll them in a gurney or anything. They just carry her, right? So I handed her, I handed this anesthesiologist, this little baby, right? And handed her off and watched her go. And uh, of course I was worried and it turned out okay. And she had several surgeries. My next child, um, we had really been concerned that, uh, well, should we have another child? We know that we have this congenital birth defect. You know, what if that child has this defect? What, you know, would we have to answer, like, is that our fault if this child, you know, and I decided, no, no, if my daughter with the cleft uh, gets married, I would want her to feel like she should have children despite having this genetic abnormality. So I decided that I would prove that by doing it myself. So we had another child, it was a son, and he was beautiful and healthy and well. And on his 45th day, he passed away from SIDS, put him down for a nap and came back and he had died in his sleep. Lord and have mercy. Uh, it's called sudden infant death syndrome. And, and, you know, they used to call it crib death. And it is really, it's shocking and terrifying because there is no, there's no warning that this is going to happen. You don't see it coming. There's no symptom. There's no way of determining it. So, and it's also really sad because we don't fully understand it. And it's really extra hard on parents when you don't have a good explanation for it, because it's, you know, I would say the enemy is very good at coming to us with our, when we don't know the answers to questions like that. And, uh, you know, just planting all these ideas. Is it something that I did? Is it, did I eat something when I was pregnant? Did I, you know, did I, was the temperature in the room wrong? Cause you know, all these, all these crazy thoughts go through your head and and you have all these temptations to blame yourself and, and a lot of really great difficulties. So that was just a terrible year. And it was interesting to me because, well, part of the reason that I brought up the, my older daughter and handing her off to the anesthesiologist, there was another moment just like that where I was holding him after he had passed away and I had to hand him off to the coroner. And it, it was exactly the same. Like it was a child, the same size and I handed him off. And, but in both cases, the person looked at me and said, I'll take good care of the, you know, and, and what, and it was like, I, I had a lot of occasion to think about the story of Abraham and Isaac and about this idea that our children are not ours and that we need to trust God with them. And I actually always hated that story, you know, where Abraham is called to, to sacrifice Isaac. And, and then, so he just, you know, has Isaac go get the wood and they walk up the hill and he's going to sacrifice. And of course the angel stays his hand, but you know, I read that before I was Orthodox and really just thought, this is the craziest thing. And, and people can tell you as many times as you want. Well, they're just explaining that it's God teaching us not to sacrifice our kids. And it's like, you know, you could just say that. <laughs> but uh, then it was so beautiful becoming Orthodox and, and coming to understand that there's this beautiful echoing of Christ, the son who carries his cross on his back, his wood up the hill to Golgotha. And so, of course, you know, that is all, it's very beautiful. But the other truth about that story is that. Abraham and Sarah had been barren for a long time and God gave them a child and God made it very clear that this child would be the ancestor of a great people that, you know, more, more than you can count the sand on the beach, more than you can count the stars in the sky. Isaac was supposed to be the beginning of this great thing. And here's Abraham being told to sacrifice him. And so, but he trusts God because Isaac's a gift from God. 
And Isaac belongs to God and he knows God can do whatever he wants, right? Abraham could sacrifice Isaac and God could resurrect him and bring him back. Like God can do anything. So Abraham trusts him and hands him over. And I think that that's a lesson that we learn, especially when our children are in the kind of circumstance that we really can't help, you know, like uh, liver failure, SIDS, uh, cleft lip and palate, any of them, right? I can bring you to a doctor and I can hand you over, but in the end, I really just have to trust because I'm powerless to fix this. And of course, especially with SIDS, you know, there is no fixing it, but I can hand him over to God, trusting that God will take care of him and that he lives in God's embrace and that he's still here. And it was really, it was a huge turning point in my life because I had converted to orthodoxy when I got married. And I understood that being Orthodox meant that I was going to go to an Orthodox church on Sundays and receive communion. And I was doing that. But what I, I didn't fully grasp the total shift in my worldview that needs to happen to really be Orthodox and, and the way that, that you really have to completely take on the church and, and, there were things that started happening. You know, when my son died, I would go to my priest and I would be like, you know, what, what do we mean by heaven? Like all my life I've heard, okay, you're going to go to heaven when you die. And it's like, like, well, now my son's in heaven. And I would like very much to know what that looks like and what that means. And uh, just like, you know, if you have a kid who plays soccer, you learn all about soccer teams. And if you have a kid who loves dinosaurs, you'll know all about dinosaurs. You know, when you have a child who goes to heaven, you need to find out what heaven is and what that looks like. And it, sent me on this journey of learning all about Orthodox theology. And it was so beautiful and it was so amazing. And all these different strange pieces all fit together so beautifully. So my experiences with Luca really, my son, really changed my whole perspective and brought me into the church with such intensity. And things like things like the memorial services and the Koliva I started to really understand, I, you know, I went to these support groups and here are these people who they want something to mark the loss of their children. So they're doing like a balloon release or they're doing a candlelit vigil, or we're trying to make like ornaments that memorialize your child for the Christmas tree. And I'm looking around and I'm going, I already have that. I have something so much better than that. You know, my whole church comes together and prays for my child every year. And I, I'm able to make the Koliva and put up his picture. And there's like, there's a way that the community marks that loss with me that as it turns out, when you lose a really young child, that is really needed. I think with miscarriage and infant death, both, because as a, as especially as a mom, you're kind of the only one who knew the baby existed, right? The baby was inside of you or you, you were at home nursing, you know, Luca had just barely made it out of his 40 days when he passed away. So he'd hardly even been to church just one time. So he was very much just something, a phenomenon that happened with just me. And so to be able to have those memorials marked it for me. And I really came to just absolutely appreciate the church. So when Mariana was in liver failure and we were going through all of that, I found myself much calmer than you would think and much more at peace. And I understood that God was taking care of my children who were alive and he was taking care of my child who had already passed and that he, was, that he had her. Either way, you know, if she passed and was with her brother, that she would, I knew I didn't want to go through that again. Don't get me wrong. I was not looking forward to that. But I also knew that I had survived because God had been with me. And I knew that he could be with me again if it had to be done that way. So it's, you know, so it's all, it's so oddly enough, 
I felt very lucky because I had already gone through a lot of things. And so by the time I hit the third one, it was like, oh, all right, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I recognize this path. I know how to, I know the yeah. way. It's, it's a particular, uh, particular, it hits particularly home for me because I just had my firstborn uh, March 5th. Congratulations. Glory to God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank God that he's alive and kicking. And But it, it's a scary thought because human existence is so, we're so fragile more than more than we think or we know, human life is. I mean, to know how many things have to go right for pregnancy to go, you know. So it's like when you have moments of of a child passing um, within the womb um, through a miscarriage, we need to, as a church, as a congregation, as a people, we need to acknowledge that the pain and the trauma of of the woman and and the family. I mean. Th- I don't think we have anything like as far as I know, I think I was talking with a priest a couple of years ago and he, he started doing, uh, he started acknowledging this much more um, prominently within his own parish by doing memorial service or calling people to either speak about their experience or s- something along those lines. And, and then I had never heard of that before. I didn't know that that was something people did, you know, rather in, instead what, what I commonly see is that the trauma is kept with them. And like you said, nobody even knows of the existence of the child except yourself rather than shared, share the trauma and the burden with other people, just like Christ shared his with us on the way to the, on, on, on the way to be crucified. It's, we, we do a disservice to our, to our family and to our beautiful women in, in that respect. Yeah. No, I think so, Father. And I think, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm sure that historically, you know, people didn't have pregnancy tests and they didn't know for sure whether they were pregnant. And it's, it's different now because we know the minute that we're pregnant. So, so many miscarriages are very early on and, and, but we know about them now and, you know, but there were still births, there were all through history. Right. And it, it's, it's true that we don't do enough for it. They're actually, uh, my friend, Matushka Anna uh, Crawford, is in Spring, Texas. She's an OCA Marushka. And she, I know, helped on a committee that wrote some prayers for miscarriage. Uh, I, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the committee. But I think it's, it might even be on the assemblies page somewhere. But uh, it was a whole crowd of different people uh, in the church, I, you know, with a bishop and priests and all sorts of people. But there, there have been some prayers in development because some of the older prayers, a lot of people find them really problematic. There is a prayer um, to pray over a woman when she has a miscarriage, but it, it really, it says something like forgive her for whatever she's done to cause this yes. miscarriage. Yeah. And it's funny cause you know, I, I miscarried one time and, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. We named, we named the baby Joe afterwards cause it could be Joseph or Josephine. And, uh, you know, so, and I think it's very healthy to, to have a name and, and to, to remember that child in your family prayers and all of the, I think that has helped us so much. But one of the things about it that really struck me is I actually think that there's some good in that old prayer because as again, you know, I think that the enemy, that's where he comes for us moms when something goes wrong with one of our babies is it's like, well, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? And the beauty of that is it says, you know, release me from that, you know, release me from the worry that I might've done something wrong. But at the same time, we need prayers that speak in a modern way to that kind of, to that kind of pain and that kind of difficulty and that don't make people feel like they've been accused of something because that is certainly not at all the case. Yeah, I think, you know, I've known people who have had uh, beautiful little grave markers and buried children who miscarried. 
uh, and many of them will do memorial services. Many priests will privately do those services with them. And I think it's very beautiful and it's so helpful in the healing to have your community recognize it. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And one, one thing that I think about, because it, it, it delves on, the, on a similar, it's in a similar vein. Well, think about for a second the reception of the child into the arms of Christ, the development of the child, like for example, your, 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 your child, and him or her receiving you into the kingdom. You know what I mean? Like that, that, will, that will come. Like usually it's us receiving the child into, the, into this new world, but there it will be them receiving you into, into the new and in, into the life in Christ. That's true. I, I mean, I, th- I think of especially babies who've miscarried, you know, or, or babies who are, who are aborted, right, or anything. The babies, they're, they're like bright lights you know, waiting for us. They're they're this beautiful, unblemished souls. And, uh, you know, I do think there's a way in which, you know, holding an infant, you feel that innocence and that beauty in them. And there is a way that they're inviting you into the kingdom and giving you a glimpse of it right there. And so it makes sense that they could later invite us and welcome us. But uh, it is, it's very beautiful. And I think all of these things, we have to be so careful how we talk about them. Um, Because, you know, all of those things, like when you bring up abortion, I think about it's it's so easy for us and it's important for us to talk about um, the trouble with abortion, right? Like what's the what's the moral problem with abortion? Clearly that's that's part of our job to be talking about this. But also we have to be doing it in a way that's careful because you know there are people in our audience who've had all sorts of life experiences and we don't know, you don't know when you're talking to someone who has gone through that and and what kind of injury they carry and what kind of wound they carry from that. And so it's always, it's always interesting to me, I think, with, with miscarriage, with abortion, with, you know, any, anything that involves such a serious injury and wounding to the soul that we have to be so cautious with how we talk to people and talk about these things. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we're like bulls in a china shop, just kind of storming around and stomping on things. And we have to be so careful, uh, you know, just like, as you said, human life is so fragile. And also, I think our human hearts are so fragile, and, and we have to be cautious with all of those things. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I can definitely do a better job on, on that and in that respect as well. You have the, the passing of Josephine, and then the, the passing of Luke, or Luca, Lucas. Luca, yeah. Yeah, after Saint... After Saint Luke, Luke, the evangelist. The evangelist, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, so um, we have a Slava saint. Uh, Kursna Slava is Sveti Luca. So uh, we named our son Luke after after Saint Luke. Oh, thank God! What what and what uh, what jurisdiction or tradition are you? So that's a Serbian tradition. I'm actually in a Greek church right now. I married a Serbian Orthodox man, and so that's how I found out about Orthodoxy, and that's how I came in. And so his family has had Saint Luke as their Slava saint for all these years, and now that's my kid's Slava saint. Like it's it's neat. it's a neat tradition. The evangelist in particular. Yes, Luke the Evangelist. So what happened was, in so back in the days in Serbia, when someone converted, this is like the year, you know, 1000, 1100, right? A long time ago. When people were converting, they had, they already were organized into clans and each clan had a totem. 
and they didn't quite want to lose those. So what they kind of negotiated with the church was this idea that, well, what if on the day of the family's baptism, you know, when the man and his household come into the, that day is generally on a feast day, right? There's going to be a saint celebrated that day. That saint becomes the patron of the whole family. So whereas in uh, other Orthodox traditions, when you're baptized, you take the name of a saint. In the Serbian tradition, your family has the name of a saint. So everyone in the family, even in fact, in fact, sometimes everyone in the family will commune under the same name because that's their saint. They don't have a name saint. They have a Slava saint. Wow. So, but generally in a Serbian church, so then you'll meet Serbs who have names that aren't saints names. You know, it'll just be like Kyle and you'll be like, oh, well, you know what? But that's because his saint is like Nicholas or George or Luke or somebody else, but that's not reflected in their name. That's reflected sort of in their last name. My, my, my wife and I, are not familiar. Uh, well, I mean, we, we are familiar, but we haven't uh, necessarily adopted that same practice. What we have adopted is um, early on in our relationship, we took a saint as our saint for the relationship um, to help us and develop, you know, and develop that. So I, I guess it's somewhat similar, but he, he still holds the, the Saint Paisa still holds a very that dear is beautiful. place in our that hearts. And we beautiful. have Zycon um, throughout the house in different places. Uh, out of out of curiosity, and, and he, here's a question that um, is challenging to answer. Uh, but what does Christ mean to you? <laughs> oh, easy, Father. <laughs> what does Christ mean to you? You know, when I think of God in general, the Trinity, I I really think of all that is good, you know, light and love and all and truth and uh, especially love and mercy and compassion and all of these things. But I think specifically when I think of Christ, I think about uh, the Psalms and I think about when I lost my son. So I, uh, when I lost my son, I had three kids that were six, four, and two, and they were very demanding and they needed a lot of things, but I was also a grieving mother. So one of the things that I would do is lock myself in my closet because that's how I could get away from my kids. <laughs> and even today, like if I have to record a podcast or something, I'm usually in my closet because that's the quiet place in the house. But uh, I would go in my closet and I would close the door and I'd be sitting on the floor and it was very dark. And that was really satisfying to me. I needed like just no light, complete dark. And I could sit there and I could cry and I could grieve and I could struggle with things. And I love the Psalms. The Psalms are very close to my heart. And David talks about the pit, uh, this pit of darkness and despair. You know, that's where I was sometimes. And so I would sit in this dark space and I would just be in the pit. And sometimes you just have to, I mean, with grief, you just have to sit with it, right? Like you can't, you can't decide not to grieve and that you're just going to be happy all the time because Jesus loves you and it's all going to be fine. You have to walk through it. And so as I was walking through, you know, the valley of the shadow of the death, I would sit there in the darkness. And when it would become too much, I would call out and Christ would come for me. And so to me, that's who Christ is, is, you know, that we can only be in this darkness for so long and in this difficulty for so long. And, and Christ is the one who comes. He's the one who's always coming and he lifts us up out of it. Just, and, and it's like, in a flash. And, you know, there were so many experiences in those first years where I was just so, it could be so, so dark and I didn't know how I would do the next thing. And, and I would sort of call out to him and, you know, not like an articulate, lovely, like, Holy Lord, Jesus Christ come to me. It was more like, ah, you know, and, and he would come. And uh, so to me, that's who Christ is. Christ comes 
and he picks us up out of darkness. And I picture him, you know, calling to Lazarus in Hades and calling to me in my closet and, you know, where, whatever it takes and wherever, wherever you are, there's no place too dark. There's no place too far away. It's like that, uh, that quote from scripture, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Absolutely. I think that, that I, yeah, I think that a lot, especially this year, you know, 2020, you got the pandemic, politics, all the crazy, everything happening. And I just, you know, it's very often nowadays that I'm thinking, what on the Lord, come quick. Have you, have you ever, um, have you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? I love the movie Princess Bride. So there's that, there's that section when the grandfather's reading to the little boy. I just, it's, it was a funny picture. It's like what it's going to be like telling our, our children what 2020 was like. And it's like the grandfather was like, oh, yes, where did we leave off? Yes, the pit of despair. And, he was, he was, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that's what 2020 feels like. I mean, it's like one thing after another. I I, I cannot believe, honestly, um, I cannot believe we find ourselves in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just endless. It's like every day, something else, right? Like I'm down here in Texas. We just, Louisiana just got a hurricane like two weeks ago. And it was like the strongest winds that have ever hit, you know? And then two weeks later, just the other day, Hurricane Sally came through and it was like, oh, the wettest hurricane ever. And it's like, really? Like you're going to, you're going to send them the two worst hurricanes just right in a row, one right after each other. And the fires on the West coast and the, you know, my friend in Pennsylvania is showing me pictures of smoke in the air from, you know, the fires in Oregon and California and, and my own childhood home. I don't know if it's there. Uh, there was a fire right next to it. And so I assume it's not there, but I don't know, back in California. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's been a year. Those pictures online have been very eerie, like uh, in California on the West Coast. That orange sky. Like red. Yeah. Yes. The, yeah. The yeah. orange red sky. It's crazy. And my family's sending me pictures like that. And it, I mean, talk about the pit of despair. It's like Gehenna, right? I mean, it's like, oh, look, it's like the burning place at the edge of the city. Like, great, great. You know, only what's being burned up isn't all of your garbage. It's like your most beautiful redwood forests and stuff. But uh, yeah, it, no, it has. It's been a really long and difficult year. And uh, I was actually just talking to a friend of mine. She's married to a priest down in Los Angeles and the fires are right next to their house and her son has asthma and, uh, you know, she's just worried. He can't breathe. And they, you know, they have smoke in their house. They're so close. And, uh, we were just talking about, you know, what does it mean? Like what, where, <laughs> what do we do with this? And, and even the question, you know, have we as parents prepared our children for this? Have we, as a church, prepared our faithful for this? Have we, you know, have we done everything we could do to make sure that we were all able to really st struggle through things? Because I think, you know, especially in the United States, well, maybe only in the United States in some sense, and maybe Canada, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of struggle and strife in a long, long time. We fight wars on other people's land. You know, we don't, we don't, go through a lot of hardship here. We haven't for many generations. And, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe there, maybe every once in a while, kind of like a forest needs the underbrush to be cleared away. You know, maybe it is spiritually necessary for us to see some hardship sometimes so that we can learn to turn toward God. And so I don't know. God knows. I don't know. If I'm not mistaken, it's St. Maximus that says that everything around us changes so that 
like everything, everything feels like our very life feels like it's slipping like sand. Feels like everything is just shifting and sift and 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 changing always because um, it should help us direct our focus and our attention to the one who never changes, the one who never shifts, the one who's always there, which is Christ. I mean, he's the same. We hear in the scriptures, right? The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Oh, that's beautiful. Father John Bear has a book of sermons, and it's called The Cross Stands as the World Turns. And you picture, you know, like the cross standing there as one of the poles, and then the world just kind of rotating around it. And it's that that image, you know, that that the world is designed to have that shiftiness so that you so that you will notice what's stable. That's beautiful. I like that. That's well, and that's also reassuring, right? Because it's so helpful to think things were crazy before, right? St. Maximus saw crazy. Other other people have seen crazy. And certainly, you know, I think like we start talking about Christian persecution and things and you know, it's always crazy to hear Americans talk about how persecuted we are, you know, especially as Orthodox people. You know, we saw what communism did just a century ago. You know, a hundred years ago, people were persecuted, right? Like, this is different from that, for sure, right? So, I don't know. I think it's helpful to remember how much Christians have gone through and how the church endures and how the faith endures. And we have to just, like, rest in that. And not and not constantly have this anxiety that that we're all going to get stamped out any second. Not so much like us personally, but like that the church is going to get stamped out or the faith is get you know, the faith stands. The faith is firm. The faith doesn't move. The church won't move. The the church won't be, won't ever be defeated by certainly by human kingdoms for sure. Not by anything, right? Not by the gates of hell. Look, if the church survived the first couple centuries of the of the most brutal martyrdom against Christians, it can survive. 21st century America, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's just like, um, so a question for you, because you've touched on, I've noticed several of your um, podcasts and some of the talks and the lectures that you you typically offer, you you sometimes touch on marriage and parenting. Has has that, how has that changed for the, during the pandemic for you? I mean, I can imagine, I, I don't know what your life was like before, but for most people you're looking at before you're, 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 going waking up early you're going to work you don't see your spouse you come back home you see your kids for a little bit you see your spouse for a little bit repeat and uh, now you're with your spouse 24 7 and the kids 24 7 um, it might not be the same for you but I'm, I'm just wondering has has that changed at all the way you communicate with your spouse or anything along those right. lines well father it's very funny you would ask because i don't talk about this much but um my husband divorced me right before the pandemic and he left and it was like you know i'm so sorry. Just like uh, just now. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay, Father. Yeah, just like just in December, I was divorced, and uh, so I actually will say I don't speak on marriage and parenting. I speak on parenting. I would say so. You know, my husband, bless his heart, had uh, sort of a midlife crisis and decided that he had had just set up his life completely wrong and needed to do a totally different thing. So he has headed out on his own to do that. And as it turns out, there was a, there were many years of really struggling through it and being in counseling and trying, honestly, anything I could to figure out how to keep this together and, sure. and praying and, and um, you know, uh, so there, those years were really, really, really difficult. And mm-hmm. it was interesting because we were finally divorced in December 
And I will say that I was very, very surprised to find that I was a little bit relieved to not be still in this struggle and in this difficulty. Um, So thank God, which I appreciate. And it's funny because then the pandemic hits and we're all locked in the house. And I never thought I would say this, but I was grateful to God that, that this divorce had happened when it happened because I was like, wow, how very painful to be in such a struggle. And so, you know, I, I was honestly like, you know, holding on by the skin of my nails or whatever you want to say, like white knuckle trying to save this. And it, it just simply was not going to work and it wasn't working. And the fact that I'm not locked in the house doing that for this year and maybe even next year, thank God. Um, and, and thank God too, my kids are okay. And it's actually been kind of lovely because it's given me this time to really spend an intense amount of time with my children, right. As they go through this traumatic experience. And so thank God, I think in some ways, weirdly enough in my life, the pandemic has had good timing in that sense. Or maybe I would say the way I think of it is that God has set things up in the right order for me as he always does. You know, he always, and also in 2019, I, um, my friend had said to me, we always said we were going to go to the Holy Land, my good yeah, friend. And, yeah. and she received a small inheritance and my marriage was going nowhere. It was going to all fall apart and you could see it coming. And it, I was so distressed and she was like, okay, now's the time. And I was like, now's the time to go to Jerusalem. You have to be <laughs> kidding me, Jerusalem. I can't yeah. do that right now. And then I thought about it. I thought, you know what? I promised her I would go with her. She wants to go. We're going to go. I spoke to different priests who were taking trips and I found uh, Father Theodore Petrides, who is like one of the sweetest, most wonderful priests on earth. And he took us to the Holy Land. And I had last spring the most beautiful journey through, you know, Galilee and Jerusalem and Palestine. And it was, it was amazing. And so I feel like, you know, here I was about to enter into this very dark and difficult situation, this dark divorce, and then also into this pandemic afterwards. And look what God did. Like he gave me this amazing trip to the Holy Land where all of a sudden the faith was like not a thing that's in a building, but is like this eternal, you know, you go to Jerusalem and you start to really appreciate how eternal the faith is and how long the church has existed and how long ago it was that like, you know, that Jacob's well was there and it's still there. And I drank water from it. And it's like this amazing continuity and to encounter history in that huge scope before you go through a divorce is very helpful because it reminds you, okay, you know what, this is, this is a blip on the radar. Like my life is a very short thing and I need to do everything I can with it. And I need to accept the things that I cannot control. And, uh, and then you know, there and there I am. I have this beautiful experience. God only knows when next will anyone will be able to go to the Holy Land. And thank God I was there at the last minute. And uh, and again, and thank God there's peace in my house right now uh, in time for this pandemic. So it's been, you know, it's been really awful. But, uh, but so in that sense, I will say, I, I do think, you know, it is interesting. I have not minded having my kids home. I really love having my kids home, but also we have good internet service and we have a big enough house that the kids are in different rooms and they're doing their homework and they, you know, it's, it's working out pretty okay for us. And like, I like having my college girls home, but I do think it's put a lot of stress on people. And I really, again, I'm very happy that I'm not in that marital struggle 
and and locked in the house. I think, you know, you can imagine, I mean, maybe that could be good in some cases, you know, maybe there are people who have problems that they haven't worked through and by being locked in the house together, they'll be able to do that. But I would imagine that I think even some of my friends who have very healthy and wonderful marriages, this is a lot of stress to go through. <laughs> this is a lot, you know, and it's financial stress. It's just the noise of the children in your ear all day. It's all of it. The biggest blessing for me for this whole pandemic was the fact that my child was born on March 5th. The very next weekend, Charlotte shuts down. And and I was able to be with my child for the first six months of life more than I would have otherwise been isn't able to. Isn't that beautiful? It is. It's the perfect time in your life to be holed up with your family, isn't it? Like it it's- is. Exactly. It's a, it's the perfect, it's the it's the perfect timing. And and and, and God's working in, in those ways for different people. Um, if, if you don't mind me asking as a follow-up, how, how are you doing? How are you, how are you handling? It? I mean, it's challenging. It's difficult. I have a few friends that are going through the divorce aspect is similar, but I'm wondering, how is that for you? You know, I, it has been, first of all, it's a very humbling experience because truly I never thought in a million years that I was someone who would be divorced. And that is, you know, I've gone through a lot. I've gone through a lot of other things and divorce was maybe the hardest in some ways. Like in some ways it was harder even than losing my son because it was like this long, slow motion, crazy thing that I could not get my hands around and I could not fix. And, uh, you know, you ultimately we're only in charge of ourselves and I did not want a divorce. And so I was, uh, you know, struggling against it. Uh, and so in some ways, as I said, you know, when it was final, there was, I was able to relax a little bit because it was several years of struggling through it. And I also see that, you know, so I should say too, when people lose a child, the rates of divorce are very high. It, that is a huge strain on a family. It's a huge strain on people. And the truth is that, you know, I really turned toward the church and I had not been as religious before that. I was, I was faithful. I loved God very much, but I wasn't like, I didn't really understand orthodoxy as much. I wasn't, I think, as fascinated with it. And I grew in that direction. My, my husband didn't, you know, I think we, we were never able to get in sync after as much as I, as certainly as I tried, but uh, I think that that was a huge strain on the marriage and that had we not gone through some of these griefs, if we could have maybe gone through half of these griefs, you know, maybe uh, maybe it would have looked different in the end. I don't know. But, you know, God is always at work. And I'm a writer and I do speak and I do podcasts. I do all these different things. And I also think, you know what, there's nobody in orthodoxy really writing about this. There's I have a few other orthodox friends who are writers and, and content contributors who are going through things like this. And we've all been talking about, you know, maybe we can turn this for the good and develop some resources or have some conversations even where, uh, where we talk about like, what does that look like for a person of faith? You know, we don't, we don't embrace divorce, but we under, we recognize human weakness and allow it. And what do you do when you're in this spot where, you know, where you've invested your whole life in something and it falls apart? It is tough. So I would say for me, um, oddly enough, I think that I really had, and I don't even think I realized it at the time, I think I had about five of the hardest years struggling through this, and that by the time I came out the other side, it, it's kind of a relief. And I think I've gone through most of the grief of it already. 
And so now I'm still kind of cleaning up with the grief. I'm still sad about it. I still struggle with it. But uh, but I also, like I said, I feel like my house is really a peaceful place. And, you know, I I feel like my kids are peaceful. And I think, and that's that's the most important thing is, is my kids and how they're doing through it. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm doing surprisingly well because as usual, God sort of lined up the things that I would need when I got here. Thank God. You, you, you mentioned that, that Psalm quote, I think it's Psalm 23, walking through the valley of the shadow of death and fearing no evil. But I, I believe it's in that same Psalm that he says, um, he brings me beside still waters and restores my soul. Yes. Right. So it's, yeah. God, God brings you through the valley of the shadow of the death and then restores your soul beside still waters, not running, not like, not this turbulent, chaotic, but still humbly, softly. Yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm sorry to hear for what you've been through. It, it sounds tough. I, I, I don't, I can't even begin to comprehend. Um, I've only had glimpses of that through my friends, many of, a few friends who are struggling through something similar. Um, but I will add you and your family to my prayer list. I appreciate it. As well to the Proscomini. I appreciate it very much. And I, I really think, you know, the prayers of my friends have helped, my my parish. It's so, again, it's, it's to, to not be able to go to church right now and not to be with my church family is hard. Um, but I, you know, my friends have done a really great job of supporting me and of staying close and, and praying for me. And I know that that makes a huge difference. I think a, a good transition here to a topic I wanted to touch on with you was self-care. Yes. Right? So you're going through this. How do you, what's self-care look like for you in this area? Because you've touched on this for, for women before. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes we've done women's retreats, like ancient faith does women's retreats or different parishes will do them and I'll come and we'll talk about self-care. And I think it's interesting because we have this funny thing in orthodoxy where we embrace the value of struggle, right? And it's so true. Struggle and suffering, these things are good for us. And being selfless and being a cheerful servant and taking care of everyone else and empty, you know, this idea of putting yourself last and putting everyone else first these are all really good things, but they get really confusing, I think, in some ways, especially for women who are, but probably for everyone, probably, I think priests actually deal with this a lot too. How do you take care of yourself and also empty yourself out and serve others? And so, you know, I think really part of it is in our attitude is the trick. Part of it is understanding yourself to be an instrument of God and not thinking there's a way that we can think of ourselves as if we are supposed to answer all of these needs. And so we just keep working and working, working to do it. And if instead we can recognize that God is answering the needs through us and in other ways, you know, that God will answer them however he answers them. There's a way that mentally we can recognize that it's not just us, that we're not taking, we don't have to do every single thing. God is going to take care of things and we have to sit back and trust him to do that a little bit. And if we can think of ourselves as an instrument, you know, if I were God's instrument, say a knife, I would have to be kept sharp, right? And I would have to be kept clean and I would have, you know, we have to do those things that make us rest because if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're going to fall apart. And, uh, you know, I think so much 
it's so easy to get into such a hectic rhythm. You know, if you pictured yourself as like a little piece of a machinery, if you're going too fast, you're going to shake and shake and all the bolts are going to go flying every which way and springs here, you know, like a cartoon. The, the, the rhythms of our lives, I think certainly in our Western cultures, are very much designed just to, to push you to your limits and to shake you apart. And what we need to do is to remember that there's another rhythm that we can live by. And the church has a rhythm of prayer and fasting. You know, you get your daily rhythm of prayer throughout the day and your weekly rhythm and your seasonal rhythms and all of this that like those things, it seems like it's an added burden. It's an extra thing to do. But I think in a lot of ways, that's the thing that'll slow you down. And sometimes I know for me, like as a, when I'm trying to take care of all my kids and all the stuff I'm trying to do, I just, I move way too fast and prayer slows me down. And it's that, it's the slowing down that we need. We need to take time just like Christ did to pray. And we need to take time for all, you know, whatever it is that we need. We need fellowship with other humans. That's an, that's a human need. It's not an option. It's not something to maybe do here and there. We need to have time with, you know, maybe some other people from our parish who understand us and that we can connect with, or, you know, people from work, whoever it is, we have to exercise, we have to eat right. That, you know, self-care, too often we think that self-care is like, oh, go to the spa or get your nails done. And and to a lot of us, that sounds like, ah, that's frivolous. I'm not going to do that, right? But that's not what self-care is. I mean, if that actually, though, if that really refreshes you and makes you feel good about yourself, then that's fine. But self-care is like, getting enough sleep at night. It is getting as good a diet as you can, right? Something nourishing and healthy that's going to carry you through the day. It's it's paying attention to your friendships. You know, do you have a friend who is really negative and constantly dragging you down and making you miserable? Like that's not self-care. Self-care is learning how to draw those lines and not let somebody kind of pull you into a terrible state of mind all the time. It's it's praying and getting had a priest who had this great image, like if you had a bucket and God just fills it up with grace when you come to church or when you pray, and then we get out of church or whatever, we stop praying, and then we turn and we yell at somebody or we lose our temper and we pour out the bucket of grace and it's all gone. Now we have to go fill it back up. Um, We do have to fill it up all the time, but we can also work on learning how to have the balance so that we're not spilling it all the time and that we can hold our peace and we can do what we need. Like, for me, I've found, for example, one of my one really important part of self-care, especially right now, is I don't watch the news. I don't have the news on in the background in my house. You know, I it's quiet in my house, or there's some light music or the hymns or something, but there's not the news on blaring in my ears because it's like it's designed to make you feel like everything's an emergency so that you'll tune in, tune in, tune in. It's not designed to make you feel better about the world. But so instead, you know, I get my news online. I go online, I look at the headlines, I click on the stories that interest me. And after a few minutes, I shut it down and I'm done for today and I'll see tomorrow what happened next. And it turns out the world keeps turning without me. It turns out that they're, they're figuring out all the things or messing up all the things exactly the same way they would have if I were watching. But I, I think it's practices like that, frankly. You know, it's it's gaining peace through God and, and through prayer and through church attendance and all of those things, but it's keeping that peace. Self-care is, a, is an area that I'm particularly interested in as a priest. 
I, I usually, whenever I'm meeting or, or talking with other priests, I'll ask, what do you do for fun? Is the question that I ask. I don't even do, I don't even say, what do you, how do you take care of What do you do for fun? How do you express that creative, fun energy side of who you are as a person? A lot of people don't know or have something or don't respond with it. They're like, oh, I've never thought about that. Or I've, I don't know what I, you know, it's, so it's, it's very surprising. And I think about that quite frequently because as a priest, we say a few times during the divine liturgy, peace be with you. How can I as a priest impart peace when I am not peaceful? How can I expect to give you the Lord's peace when I, when I how, how can I give you something that I myself do not have? So it's, it's something that I, I think about, I, you know, I, I, I don't, it's, it's beautiful to try to understand who you are as a person, what refreshes you, what refreshes your soul, what calms you down, what, what agitates you so you can avoid those triggers. And- right. Absolutely. And those are gifts that God gives us, right? Like all of us have things that refresh us and make us happy. And we forget about them over the years and we don't, do- those were gifts that God gave you because you're his instrument. That's how he keeps you in tune. Right. And so we, you know, we start to think, Oh, I, I don't have time for that. Cause I have all these children. I have these responsibilities at work. I have this parish, I have whatever, but you know, that's the thing that's going to refresh you so that you can do those things. I like that point. How do you give peace if you don't have peace, right? You're not going to be a conduit of peace or of love or of joy or any of those things that as parents, we want to pour out on our children. As priests, we need to pour out on our parish or just as human beings. We need to like, that's what Christians are, right? Like we need to be the injection point of grace into our community. Yes. If, if you're yes. lucky enough to be in the Holy Church and to be able to receive communion and to to have these prayers that can bring you all of this peace. You're supposed to spread that and be a lamp. You know, how are we going to be a lamp if we can't be filled up with light? It's, it is true. I think we, and and I don't know, you know, we're just all business around here sometimes, you know, (laughs) we're just so busy. We're so important and so busy. Isn't, isn't that the truth? Um, what one of a I, I give a talk in particular that I, that I really love, and it focuses on who am I. It kind of answers that question and explores practical spirituality. Um, for example, one of the things, one of the takeaways is uh, a good. Uh, so, so our understanding of Orthodox Christianity and, and sanctification is that we acquire the Holy Spirit. Like that's that's our our duty, the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. You can read that in Saint Seraphim Asraf very beautifully. And which is why when we acquire the Holy Spirit, a thousand around us can be saved. By me participating in the acquisition of the Spirit, other people are saved. It shows us that my participation in grace and in holiness extends to those around me, whether they're participating or not. Likewise, my participation in sin extends to those around me, whether they're participating or not. So in my in my acquisition of the Holy Spirit, one of the questions that or statements that I say is um, a good way to gauge if you have the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is with you, just look up at the fruits. Are you patient? Do you have self-control? Are you gentle? Are you kind? You know, and for those, <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and for those seeking to be married for, for, your, for spouses, for um, how a parent reacts to their children, which I do not have, by the way. That's what it, what's that's what a newborn has taught me. It's like I thought I was had some of those things, but it's clearly that not the case anymore. Especially with like the lack of sleep. It's like a video game, Father. You just leveled up, and you just have to like <laughs> it's develop new, those yeah. powers at this level. <laughs> Wait till there's a teenager. It's like it's like ten levels higher. It's awful. 
but it's great. That's how, you know, that's how God turns us into saints is by showing us like, okay, well, that's good. You've come so far. Now let's try the next thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and find out there's a little further to go. <laughs> yeah. By God's grace, true to, to, you know, from one degree of glory to God another. God willing. God willing by his grace. Um, as we transition to a, to a close here, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, uh, especially now with what you have gone through in life when it pertains to gender roles in the household, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I, I haven't listened to any of your lectures or talks pertaining that, but I did see that as one of your talking points. And I'm curious what... Well, you know, it's interesting because I really hadn't thought about that a lot. And then uh, then a friend of mine approached me and wanted me to speak at this webinar. And I was like, oh, sure, you know, talking about family stuff. And I usually talk about parenting and and really religious education in the home. And he was like... All of a sudden, he's like, oh, okay, by the way, your topic is gender roles. And I was like, wait, you can't give me a topic that I don't know what I think about that. But, you know, it was interesting. So what I did was I, I created a little survey about gender roles in the household and how people were feeling about them for Orthodox families. And I put it up on Facebook. I put it up on my blog. I asked some of my friends to fill this out. And I, I had quite a few responses. And what I started to see that was really fascinating was a lot of mothers who were saying, I am the spiritual leader in my household. I'm, you know, making sure my kids get to church. I'm, I'm cooking the food. So I'm making sure that we're fasting. I'm making sure we're saying the prayers. I'm reading them the Bible. And so they're doing a great job, right? And you get toward the end of it. And when I say, who is the spiritual leader in your house? They say, well, my husband's supposed to be, but I am. And I think we're doing it wrong. And I think it's a problem. And it was kind of over and over and over again, I was seeing it. And I thought, you know, it's interesting because I think that here we are and we're very aware of the fact that we live in a really modern culture and that things are very different than they used to be. And gender roles, of course, have been shifting. Women are in the workplace. You know, we have all these different things going on. And so I think we have some anxiety already as women, that there's something about our role as it's lived out in the United States that is unlike what it's supposed to be, right? That like what the church calls for, what tradition calls for is a different thing. And so I started looking at it and I'm looking at like, like okay, well, who are our examples as women? Like what, what were women doing a thousand years ago and 2000 years ago and 5,000 years ago? these godly women. And looking through it, what I was really seeing is, you know, a lot of women doing the things that we're doing, <laughs> that it's okay. And that being the spiritual leader of the house does not, is not the same thing as doing all the hands-on work. And so that I saw a lot of interesting um, pattern. I, I saw that a lot of American households, the dad is the one who's making sure everybody's saying their prayers and going to church. And in some other households, the mom is the one. And almost always it's one or the other, like that one of the one member of the team is maybe more dedicated to it or better at it or, or has more time for it or for whatever reason, right? Like even sometimes in a priest family, it's his wife that's really leading it with the kids because he's so busy with his parish. And so, you know, he's still the leader of the, of the home, but you know, he's got a lot. His wife's the one who's actually doing the teaching, right? There's nothing. That's how it's supposed to be. That's a partnership. That's working together. So, you know, what I ended up speaking about there and, and have thought a lot about um, is that we need to look at, for example, the Theotokos, mm -hmm. right? Like she's, she's clearly our example. She's our role model as women. She's the ideal mother. What was she doing? 
right? She very interestingly, you know, people traveled to Jerusalem to hear her speak. She was speaking publicly about her son, about the gospel. She was evangelizing. She was she was sharing. She spent a lot of time in prayer, and she spent a lot of time um, teaching. She taught St. Luke, right? She, everything St. Luke's got in his gospel comes from her, right? I mean, so that it's she's not someone who's quiet and home and locked down. You know, that she's out in the world. She's doing things. She's actually very eloquent if you look at the Magnificat, right? And the... You know, she speaks spontaneously in the most beautiful language, and she is poetic, and she's smart, and she's she's strong, and she can she can do all of these things. And so, you know, you can look at a lot of mothers. You can look at even the Old Testament, right? There's the whole like Proverbs 31 woman. I know is really popular in the Protestant world, and but it's true. You know, in Proverbs describing in describing what a good wife would be, it really is a lot of like, she's managing the vineyard and she's telling the servants what to do. So anyway, that's what I was talking about in that sense is more just this. I think we have some real unnecessary anxiety about what gender roles should be because we feel like, oh man, I'm an American. I'm growing up in the, I'm here. I am in the 21st century. I'm probably doing it all wrong just by nature, but just because we're Americans and we do everything backwards. And it's like, you know what? It's okay. <laughs> Take yeah. a deep breath. It's okay. You, you know, my, my, uh, my two thoughts when, when you're sharing that is, first of all, I, I'm, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely the truth. But for, for in my family, in our current context and situation, I would say that my wife, although I'm the priest, she's taken a lead on the spiritual health of our family. Primarily because um, she's up early with with the baby, so she's doing morning prayers with with her son. I'm not even present for those. And then in the evening when I'm here, she takes the lead because it's the routine that she's established for our family and especially for for our son, which is so beautiful. It's like I participate in their prayer. Um, I mean, it's our prayer, but it's it's her leadership, which I find it's it's a beautiful thing to to contemplate on. And then the other thing is, um, and this is not dogmatic, this is not theological, this is nothing, this is just Father Christian's thoughts that could be completely backwards, And but it's his own thoughts. So I, I'd love to share with this because I, I'm, I'm curious if, if you have an addition to that or, or uh, rebuttal, but I have often seen that when we talk about the Theotokos and we portray her and we under, and we, in, in the hymnology and in our understanding and the Akathis, she is always given, by and large, very masculine um, attributes, traditional, whatever you want to call it, um, defender, champion, leader, warrior, right? It's amazing. When it comes to Christ, he's always given very feminine attributes, compassionate, kind. And and I say this, not that it's specific, not that you're feminine if you have, if you're kind or compassionate. I mean, you know, I don't want to make, I want to make sure that people aren't offended by a statement like that, but he's sweet, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's tender. You know, but but he's he's the man. You know what I mean? And and the Theotokos is the woman. And I often ponder that because I, I see that reflected in our in many of our monastics. When I've, I've 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 been to many women's monasteries, many men's monasteries, and you look at the at the leader at a woman's monastery, and she's like this very sturdy, almost I don't want to say manly, but very like tough. Not all of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And the men are like these very, the, the abbots are like these very gentle, kind, humble, you know, it's like, so it's, it's, it's beautiful to see. It's almost as if, and these are, this is where my thought comes in. It's almost as if, as we grow in our, as a man, as I grow as a man, I acquire that which the other has so that 
I become much more, uh, much more human. Uh, not I want to say much more human, but much more, much more of who, who I'm called to be. I become like my master, Christ, while, embla- while embracing all these other attributes of the opposite sex and, and vice versa, you know? So that that's just Father Christian thought. That's not yeah. a... Um, well, I mean, I, I agree though, Father. I think that that's really a neat, that's a neat reflection. And I think, you know... I, there's a way, and maybe this is like just really something we do in the United States. You know, we have the toxic masculinity, all this sort of idea of like ruggedness. I grew up with the idea that Jesus, like, oh, all these depictions of Jesus as being weak or gentle are wrong because he was a carpenter and he was a big burly man, just like the rest of us are, you know, and it's very like God and guns culture. I'm down in Texas, right? So I'm seeing a lot of this. And it's like this sense that like, of this like real machismo and like, we're going to go to war. And of course that's not really what traditional Christianity looks like. And, you know, you've looked through the Bible and the women are every bit as assertive and smart and strong as the men are. And the men who are really godly are always compassionate and loving, although they're also really strong and they'll, they can defend their wives and they can go to war and they can lead and they do all these things. You also have like Deborah in Judges, who is a, she's a military commander in the Old Testament, right? And she's female. It's yeah, not, yeah. there's, I think there's a way that American Christianity imagines this really huge gulf between men and women. And I don't think it's true. I don't think it's real. I don't think that, that real humanity has borne that out to be true. I think that we are all sort of a lot alike. We're all called to be Christ-like, right? Women aren't called to not be Christ-like because he's male and we're female, you know, and, and Christ says in heaven, there is no male and female, right? It's like when you reach your fully actualized self, you're a human, you're a perfect human. You're not going to be like, you know, super feminine or super masculine or whatever. You're going to be Christ-like, which is all the good traits of both sides. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think there, I think there's a lot of interest in gender. I think especially today, you know, you've got a lot of like, you know, oh, there are a hundred genders or there is no gender. Or, I'm non-binary, all these ideas. Right. And, and I think, you know, it's just, it's much ado about nothing in a lot of ways. Cause it's like, go be a good human, you know, like, or, I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care what you're doing. You know, like, like you say the monastics, right. They're all wearing black cassocks in the end, right? Like you could call them different things, but in the end, it's like a floor length black robe that you walk around in because it doesn't it doesn't pay to be focused on such things right it really doesn't pay it focus on christ right i've 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 also often often heard that the soul is um it's ipsy he it's a it's a feminine um language right and christ is the bridegroom which makes us whether you're man or woman it makes you the bride of christ that's right that's so it's right. like we we don't we don't pay so much attention to that because our focus is christ alone um, so thank God. Uh, so a, a question that, that, uh, I close off for most of our listeners, uh, sorry for, for all of our guests is, uh, what's a book and, uh, I, I know there are probably many, but what's a book that has most influenced your life? I'm very torn between Father Arseni and Wounded by Love, but I'll go with Wounded by Love. And I will say Father Arseni should have been the book that most influenced my life. Because when I first came into the Orthodox Church, 
I asked my priest, who was a lovely Serbian man whose English was not very good, and who really struggled like to communicate with a Protestant convert because he didn't he didn't understand the words I was using and I didn't understand the words he was using, right? But he's I said, I really want a book and I wanted a catechism book. And he's like, read this. And he hands me Father Arseni, which of course is a story of a of a priest in, in the gulag. And I was like, this is a biography, not a catechism. This man has no idea what I'm talking about. And I put it on my bookshelf and walked away. I read it like 15 years later. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I had read that, I would have understood orthodoxy. Like I, he knew what I needed and that's what I needed. So that should have been the book that changed everything, but it didn't because I refused to read it at the right time. But the book that I think influences me most and that I love the most, and I go back to and I read again and again is Wounded by Love. Uh, by St. Porfirios. And I, you know, in fact, actually, I, I missed having a Slava because I'm no longer married into a Serbian family. Although the priest said I could keep the Slava, I said, I kind of want a different Slava. I want my own. And my kids were like, Mom, you should have your own Slava. So I, it's uh, my Slava saint. I've asked St. Porfirios to be my patron because I, I you know, he's, he's so gentle and he's so wise. And he, I feel that he is so much at peace. And he just kind of radiates peace. And he says things like, as a parent, you know, you must radiate Christ. And it's just like, you should what? Like radiate Christ. Like that is, wow. Like what a what an assignment for us, right? It's just so wonderful. So I would say St. Porfirios, you know, Wounded by Love has got to be one of the best books that has ever been Beautiful. printed. I, I think I read Wounded by Love a little bit later. In my seminarian years, I was more attracted to Saint Paisios, whom I continue to love. But yeah. he's amazing oh, yeah. too. They yeah. kind of go hand in hand. I Saint Porfirios was his spiritual father, right? So they're like they're uh, tight. <laughs> but Father Arseni is one of the few books that has made me cry. And there's a there's a section in that book um, of when Father Arseni is uh, he's hearing the confession of one of the prisoners, and this prisoner. He's talking about how I, I think he, he went into this woman's room and, uh, and assaulted her and, and all these things. And uh, Father Arseni, and then there's like this reflection of Father Arseni saying, as a man, I don't want to offer the forgiveness, but as a priest, I have to, you know, so, he, so he's having like this, like, and I'm, I don't know why, like, I, I still don't know why that part in particular just really struck me, probably because it's, it's like, it's, it's not our, I wasn't a priest at the time when I read it, but it's not our duty as a priest to say who gets forgiveness and who doesn't, right? Christ offers the forgiveness. We're just a, we're just a tool through which Christ offers his grace in a sense. But yeah, so beautiful. Father Arseni yeah, and, and Wounded by Love. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful... Can I tell you a Father Arseni story real quick? Please, please, okay. yeah. So my, I converted. My family's not Orthodox. I have an older brother who's always been very faithful, but he struggles with mental illness and drug addiction and all sorts of stuff. So he's been homeless and he's, he's gone through all sorts of things. And then at one point he was in prison for a while and he came out and it's been about 15 years. He has been clean and sober ever since he has been stable. He keeps his job. He's doing so well. He's remarried. His life is really back on track. And one day, um, you know, my father had passed away and my brother and I were sitting and having all of these long, deep conversations about our childhood and all this. And I looked at it and I was like, Sean, what happened? Like, what was it that like just made everything work for you all of a sudden? Like, what brought you this stability and this beauty? And he goes, oh, it was one of your guys. And I'm like, what? 
And he's like, well, I was in prison and I was in solitary confinement because he was always, he was always angry with his guards. So he's yelling at the guards. He's mad at the guards. He blames the guards for all of his problems in life. And uh, so they were constantly putting me in solitary confinement. So he's in there and you can check off on this list what kind of books you're interested in. And the prison brings around books. And he had said Christian spirituality. Well, this book shows up. And as he says, he goes, I think it's one of your guys. It had kind of a black and white cover. And there's like a little man with a hat. And he's in the trees. And I go, Father Arseny? And he's like, yeah, you're the same as the, he's like, he was German or something. I'm like, I think he was Russian. He's like, yeah, yeah, Russian. He's Russian. Like, okay. But somehow my brother who does not read books much and who is not Orthodox read Father Arseny. And what he said was, I had experiences with Father Arseny in that cell that changed me forever. And I don't know what they were. I don't know what any of that was, but you know, and, and one of the things that he noted was that Father Arseni loved his guards and he prayed for his guards because he's a Christian and that's what Christians do. And he was like, I realized here I felt like I was a Christian. And I was so self-righteous and I'm, you know, everybody else's fault for everything. And all of a sudden I realized like he was treated unfairly and he loved his guards and I am guilty and I am treated totally appropriately and I hate my guards. And it just... It changed everything for him. So I, that is that is a book. That is really a book. If people have not read it, read it. It's so good. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, th- thank you so much for, for joining us, for being vulnerable and open uh, with us today. Honestly, it was a pleasure to speak with you uh, on, on this podcast, on, on, on Hidden Lives. Well, thank you so much, Father. It was a joy to be here. Well, that was Elisa Belitich. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation. Elisa's vulnerability about her life really moved me, and I hope it moved you as well. Her candor was refreshing and has even given me the courage to be honest with myself and with others, and especially with God. I'm thankful to have spoken with her today. You can learn more about our guests by checking out our show notes. If you found this conversation fruitful, please subscribe and share with us what you enjoyed about this episode. Until next time, I'm Father Christian, and this was Hidden Lives.